Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a, I hate to say a budding you know, syndicator in multifamily, because that makes it sound like he's not doing it because he is very, very successfully. So he is the co-founder of Sage Investment Group, uh, which has been syndicating properties over the last couple of years and in, is on a fantastic trajectory. This man is the co-founder of Sage Investment Group. He is Ross Hubbard. Ross, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate you having me. And uh, so you're up there uh, north of me, you're uh, representing the Pacific Northwest up there in the uh, Seattle Metro. Ross, I know you're doing, you're in the syndication business, but, you know, I have to ask you, you know, what have you done, you know, going back the last, you know, decade or so? I saw that you were in the in the painting business, which is interesting to me, strangely, only because I've thought about getting getting into it a time or two, and I never did it. So, what what's led up to where you are now? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. That's uh, I was always a hard worker. I think that's where I, the, everything originated. It was my family taught me how to work. Uh, I started in the construction industry, and I was always really interested in, in understanding how to make a dollar and how to continue that dollar's uh, investment opportunity. I'm, I just had different motivation. So when it came to you know transitioning. Uh, I had started in the business, general contracting, painting contracting with my parents, my family business. And then uh, on the side after college, I, I found uh, single family investment real estate. Started buying with my wife auction properties. It's 2010. It's a great time to enter the market. Only going up from there for the, the next decade, as we've seen. And uh, we started to acquire uh, with the intent of holding, not flipping, just acquiring to have passive income gains, had a specific number in mind, trying to hit $3,000 a month in income and uh, be able to uh, have Emily stay at home if we chose to raise a family, if that's what she chose to do. So yeah, that was our, our interest. In 2014, I had a life event change uh, my, my trajectory where I fell off a ladder and uh, stopped being interested in running a painting business <laughs> and uh, transitioned, transitioned into my hobby, which was uh, real estate investing. So I uh, looked for brokerage opportunities and uh, found one through a neighbor of mine started to show other people how to invest in properties that they would own. Uh, you know, how, what I had done for myself, I could effectively teach them to do for themselves. And I would take a 3% cut that was paid by the seller. So a pretty good deal for everyone. And uh, that allowed me to access, you know, both increases in capital that I could invest because I was making more money, you know, transacted 40 transactions that first year. And uh, it also allowed me access to inventory. Because now I was, you know, a broker. I was accessing all of the, at the time, you know, real estate that was owned by banks, foreclosures, uh, all these properties that were available that were still you know, good value uh, in 2014-15. And as as that started to expire, I needed to you know, find other opportunities. The market got hot. Uh, the demand was on real estate. The focus was on buying, investing in real estate. So we needed to look for off-market deals and that's where we really doubled down. Got it. Okay. Well, that was, uh, that was concise, man. So, you know, I think you're the first guy I've ever spoken to whose transitional moment was falling off a ladder. Um, so, oh. 
it was a, it's a blessing in disguise. That's for sure. It, it wasn't anything that I expected to be a good thing. You know, I, I was really busted up and, uh, I was off my feet for six months. I was depressed. You know, it was just this massive inflection point. And, uh, to, to understand that, yeah, it could be made something really positive, uh, is uh, surreal, uh, for me, especially now. Uh, but I'm absolutely thrilled. Uh, we've been able to help a lot of people as a result of that accident, you know, both investing uh, and also tenants that needed better quality of living. Well, you know, this could be a, a different podcast, uh, but I mean, you know, you don't know like the meaning of things in real time. And I think we have a, a tendency to judge things in terms of good or bad in the moment. I know I certainly do. And at the end of the day, and I don't want to get necessarily metaphysical here, but at the end of the day, we really don't know. There's a bigger picture than just like what we're, what we can see in that moment. And, uh, yes. you know, and if I, if I look back just kind of on, on my life, I mean, there's so many times when I think I thought things would, things that occurred would result in other things and they didn't result in those things. They resulted in other things. And in my particular case, uh, they were not always, but almost always, almost always much better than I thought. And that's just cause I, I err mm. on the negative side, but that's just me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just, you know, think I'm a doom and gloomer, but you know, dude, you were, you were down for six months. So like we talking yeah. broken bones here or we, we, Oh yeah. Broken bones, dislocated shoulders. You know, I had to be surgically put back together. I had pins, I had screws, I had plates. I had a lot of time on my hands, which wasn't good for me. You know, it was just, it was the worst possible thing that could have happened to my life as far as I knew it at that time. And, uh, it forced me to get outside of my box because I knew what I didn't want to do. I knew I didn't want to want to do that anymore. That's for sure. And I knew I needed to figure out a way to you know, make money for my family and how to sustain that and grow that. And so that we could have kids and grow our family. But, uh, to, to, to see it turn into real estate investing and, and uh, the number of units that we own now is, is quite amazing. And uh, I think testament to just the fact that anybody can do this. You know, if you have uh, the opportunity to get started in something, investing, and you can take that opportunity and continue to expand upon it over time, it will compound and grow, uh, particularly in real what estate. Was the, you said that the painting business was a family business? Yeah, my parents started it in 96. And so I grew up in it. You know, I was, I'm an 88 baby, so I'm, I'm 34 now. But uh, as as a young kid growing up in a in a business that's feast or famine, very seasonal in the Northwest, you know, residential painting, it was quite the experience. And I, I had a lot of exposure to things that went well, things that didn't go well, and uh, a lot of problems to solve. That was for sure. Also, how to how to treat a client, how to treat a, a person that's investing in you. So it's a it was a huge uh, learning opportunity for me. I, I would never give it back. That's for sure. It was a stepping stone on on my path to get to where I'm at now. Uh, but that's, that's how I started. Do you, do you still have, uh, screws and plates and wires and et cetera in your body? Or have they all been removed? Oh yeah. They're still there. Yeah. They just got get it. Yeah. 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 I, I'm thinking to myself, it doesn't <laughs> say, yeah, my wife got hit by a car. She was a pedestrian and this is just six months ago. Oof. Yeah. We were in New York. Oh yeah. man. Yeah. Sorry. Shattered her knee, this and that. And she's got like eight screws mm. and, and plate everything you're describing. And I'm thinking they ain't going away. They're there forever. So, okay. All right. Well, I, yeah. I, I don't want to dwell too much. So very interesting. So when you said that, you know, you, you became a broker to find broker, you know, opportunities for other people, 
Are you basically saying you be, you were a broker and then and then specialize in helping people buy investment property? Is that what you're saying? Not exclusively. I mean, I was uh, Zill lead parsing, so I was just trying to get as many people to recognize me as a real estate professional as possible. And I was uh, exercising my niche, which was I own seven rental properties. This is how I did it. This is where I bought them. This is why I bought them. Here are my analysis tools. These are yours for no extra fee. And uh, let, let me show you how you can help yourself here. Now, this is the margin that you can make. Here's your cash and cash return. Here's your IRR if you sell, if you refinance, et cetera. So it was just a financial education for folks that I was able to open up a service that isn't provided. You know, typically real estate brokers are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'll show you the MLS listings, but I can't tell you anything about anything. I'm not an investment advisor, et cetera. So there's, there's all that, you know, self restriction that people put on themselves. Now I know what I'm doing for myself. So the caveat is that let me show you what I would do if I could buy this house. Now I'm two years, 1099, no more W2. So I'm dead to the banks. I can't invest in these if I absolutely wanted to. And uh, so the only option for me was to broker or find seller financing deals. So I continued to peel back, you know, the opportunities. And as I grew my brokerage business, I grew the opportunities that I was not only finding for my clients, but I was also starting to find for myself. And that's when I got exposure to seller financing. And I realized that the bank was going to be determined by the, the lender, the seller, uh, a willingness to lend to me and for a certain amount of money down. So I did a couple of transactions like that, got into multifamily as a result on seller financing notes. And my entire previous strategy had been surrounded by the refinance Burr model, the buy, uh, rent, rent, uh, remodel, rent, refinance, and repeat. And I started to execute that on a, on a multifamily scale. So I got out of those seller finance deals with new debt after I had two years of 1099 income. And I was able to go ahead and cash out my entire down payment principal investment. So instantly expanding, opening up my total you know, ROI cash on cash and uh, expanding my ROI potential as well, since I didn't have any capital left in that property. So I took that investment that I refinanced and put it into another one. And that's how I was able to continue to scale up without you know needing to invest tons of more money. Uh, ultimately, just through that Burma. So the, the 40 transactions you did that first year, were they all houses? Yeah, all single family houses. Got it. Well, dude, you're a superstar. You're like year one, you sell 40 houses. I mean, that that's pretty, pretty darn amazing in and of itself. When do, they were like 100, 150,000. Yeah, but even still, I mean, mo- most people don't do that year one. Most people, as well, you know better than I do, most people never do 40 houses a, a year. Um, I mean, that's like almost one a week. So year one, what, what, what enabled you to do that? I wasn't planning on asking you that question, but I mean, year one, like, holy cow, man, you, you like got out of the a gate, like flying. I just put myself out there. Um, I partnered with a couple of people that are really key strategic partners and we were just getting people to come to seminars. So we had insurance, uh, like insurance salesperson that was uh pitching whole life, universal life. At the time, it wasn't something, uh, tools that I didn't understand that I'd, uh, I wanted to utilize only to access network. So I did that and I, I later got to understand the power of those. And that's a whole, whole nother topic, uh, as particularly as it relates to investing in real estate. But, uh, that's, that's how we did it. We got to have conferences in total wine and more. We put 60 people in a room every month and they all were there just to listen and learn. 
And some of them engaged and wanted to become active investors and some of them didn't. And and we just continued to do that every month until we had so many people that were interested in buying whatever we could procure that we were going to be able to develop a nice brokerage stream of business. And then the secret, you know, really the secret sauce was how do we find inventory that is not findable? You know, how do we get rid of the competition demand pressure? How do we go direct to seller? And how do we offer our clients value that they'll pay for beyond 3% even? Uh, so we're, we were really interested in expanding the opportunity for each investor to make as much yield on their investment as possible, which meant we needed to buy better. So that became uh, really critical and, uh, you know, how we continue to sustain success in, in buying opportunities now. So how did you get directly to the seller? A lot of networking, primarily through brokerage networks, wholesale networks, and then a little bit of direct marketing, um, some cold calling. But we found that leveraging other people's networks was much more powerful than any number of calls you could make in, in an hour. Uh, so, you know, getting together with people that were hitting the pavement and expanding upon them. You know, I think about it uh, for every, say, broker, you know, those 10 sellers, how many brokers do I need to know in order to know enough sellers to be able to churn a pipeline of inventory coming my way that I'm going to be able to cherry pick from? And I'm going to be able to to get the best possible investments that are based upon circumstance uh, of seller need. And, you know, we're we're solving a problem when we buy something. Uh, We just need to find the really big problems to solve so that we can get better values. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Have those uh, problems largely disappeared in the last uh, five years or so? No, not at all. Uh, so the, the the main problem is inventory and supply and demand of uh, housing availability. So right now we're still short. And it depends on which you know, article you read, I guess, between four and six million total housing units across the United States. So with that you know, massive discrepancy, uh, the, the need is finding the way to produce and provide more units to the market. Now, how do you do that in a reasonable amount of time is the question. You can buy and renovate or you can build new. So building new is not realistic. So we are looking for opportunities to convert. How do we take an asset that's a quality asset in good areas and high demand districts that are not being utilized for their highest and best use? So we're we're deep now into motel conversions because we are fulfilling a need to an underserved market that is not provided with value because there's no potential to provide it. It's too expensive to do anything anymore. Uh, so this is uh, this is one way we're now renewing and adapting and reusing and creating value from asset class conversions rather than just value add apartment buildings and making old apartments into new. Mm. What year did you do your first multifamily? 2015. Got it. Is that money you had pulled out of uh, your single families and uh, pull, you know, pulled cash out and then you put it into that property in 15? 
I you could probably track it that way, yeah. Uh, and I also put in brokerage income. Um, but my first multifamily was a ten percent down deal uh, in in Spokane, and it was uh, you know a hundred thousand down. So it's a pretty easy chunk to to be able to invest that time for us, and uh, we we got it rolling. Um, so after that refinance, we continued to to put that into the next multifamily assets. That hundred thousand was then paired with another hundred and fifty thousand that I brought together in a small partnership group of friends. And uh, we put that to work in, into the next multifamily in 2016. This, in 15, that deal in Spokane, how many units was it? When was it built? And were you able to cash flow with just, you know, putting 10% down? Like, what did all that look like? Yeah, it was awesome. It was 19 units built in 1904. And it was a chopped up mansion. It was in pretty good condition, but the rents were very low. And the cosmetic improvements, you know, could could be better upon unit turns. But just the the large loss to lease that they had from their um, market rent discrepancies, even on the class of units they had, was was good. So it was just an old seller that was out of state that didn't know what he was doing, didn't care to pay attention to it, had a low cost basis uh, that we were able to you know get to transact with us uh, at probably a, a higher price than the market would have you know demanded. Uh, because of the seller finance deal, I think I paid a little bit of a premium for it in that that year. But uh, the market market continued to go vertical, so it wasn't something that was a problem, and it was easy to get refinanced out of in a year and a half. That you know buoyed our success in that one. You know, just having the the market go up and in the waves that it did during that time was was pretty interesting. And so, so on on the front end of that deal, putting a hundred grand down before raising rents and before doing cosmetic improvements. Was it a break even? Were you upside down a little bit? Or I'm just curious to know. Uh, no, it was about a 9% cash on cash return from the start. Wow. So that's, a, and, and then it was just all upside. And there wasn't, you know, being a hundred year old building or a 110 year old building, there wasn't a ton of structural and especially a convert, you know, it was a mansion. It wasn't built as a multifamily. There wasn't a lot of structural um, that our biggest headaches there were the plumbing ongoing because it was right. a mixture of galvanized PEX and copper. When copper and galvanized get together, they don't get along well. Um, so that was a pain. Uh, but the foundation was luckily redone in the 1980s and the electrical was also redone in the 90s. So there were some modern components in an old structure. Uh, the most bizarre thing that you can effectively change was just the corridor layout, you know, how the rooms were, where you could get to the rooms. Uh, just inconveniences of an, an old, not well-designed building because it wasn't used for that initially. But uh, it just lowered rents. Got it, got it, got it. Well, man, you got, and how far is Spokane from where you live? It's a secondary market. It's about four and a half hours away. Right, because it's eastern. And it's all the way eastern. Yeah, it's east, eastern mm-hmm. Washington. Yeah, man, so you, you, got some, uh, you got some courage. I'll just put it nicely. There are other ways of describing that, but yeah, well, that I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of background in, in Eastern Washington because of, uh, I went to WSU in Pullman okay, and, uh, graduated there in 2010. And so I, I knew, I knew Spokane well, been there a bunch. Um, I was very familiar with, with Yakima and Grandview and Moses Lake, all these other markets that I've been driving through for years. Uh, I didn't actually you know, invest in, in until 2015 and beyond, but I knew them. So that made it more comfortable. Interesting. Do you still have that property, the the, the converted mansion? No, no. Everything, um, primarily everything from 2000 through 2015 through 18 has been sold. Our, our business model is pretty specific for a five-year hold, seven-year hold the most. And then if we are able to realize a really you know, solid IRR, we'll sell them three. 
um, our most you know successful syndication to date was in 2019 in Tucson, Arizona. And that was a three-year hold just because of the value pop that we we're able to create. Yeah. And you had, boy, time, you know, I mean, look, you entered the ring, but timing was, was your friend. And what was the nature of that? The Tucson building, how many units was it? And when was that built? That was 175 units. It was built in 1954 and it was originally a hotel. So it was 170 studio units ranging from 240 to 315 square feet. And it's my first real exposure to an all-studio building and first exposure to a potential conversion of uh, an asset. So that was that was very interesting. It started to prove that concept for me. And you know, we went through a lot uh, with that property because when we brought it, it was 2019, April. And when we finished renovation, it was August of 2020. And it was uh, COVID times. And we were geared towards students at uh, the University of Arizona. And there weren't any. And uh we were, we were, yeah, it was wild. So it, it, it didn't go well, you know, conventionally as, as a start. Uh, we had 40% occupancy and a $50,000 monthly burn, uh, which was eating through our 10-month reserve quickly. So we had to totally switch gears on that project. So so how did it, so it, but you said it ended up being your best one. So so what, how did you pivot? How, how, did, how did you make hay out of that? The, the pivot provided me the insight into the, the scale that we uh, can achieve now, which is, you can only do so much yourself and you have to rely upon the best possible third parties that are going to be better than you at implementing certain parts of your business than you can ever be. So we we got introduced to a company called Indigo Asset Management and they're an asset management level company that does multifamily that is uh, is quite uh, diligent in the way that they hold people accountable. So we brought them in and then we had them take a look at our existing property management firm. And uh, they were geared towards student housing. So we knew we already had a problem. And uh, we had them take 24 hours to, to dig into them. They came back and say, normally we'd you know work on uh, some recommendations for solving this and move forward with the existing because it's not easy to transition to a new PM. But uh, in this case, you know, we feel there's nothing, re- uh, <laughs> nothing that we can do with this company and we need to completely transition out. So we followed their lead and we uh, ditched that company and got in uh, with AMC, uh, who is a national based out of Utah property management firm. They, they run, oh gosh, it's probably 100,000 units. And they're uh, they're regionally organized, and so I found the the power in the in the large multifamily property management groups it w- was massive because of their organization and ability to execute with some very qualified and well paid staff. And so they brought in their people and turned a marketing uh, plan into gold. And within six months, we were ninety nine point six percent occupied uh, at market rate rents. So we had we had gone from forty percent. So 99.6%, we had the model unit open and it was, uh, it was quite a quite incredible feat. I mean, I was very impressed. And so we, we've kept with them for every single property that we've done since then uh, and have benefited from it greatly. Uh, but that's the that's been the key to the transition there. That's for sure. But what I'm hearing is that you know August of 2020, it certainly wasn't your property management company's fault that COVID happened, and there are no students returning that year to go to Arizona, you know, University of Arizona. So what what did uh, Indigo do in terms in able to get that thing completely occupied? Well, the problem was the demographic that we were trying to appeal to with the previous property management firm and they're, they weren't changing. They weren't helping us at all. And so getting a new, new team in there was the critical piece, implementing a marketing plan that was geared towards young professionals so that we were no longer targeting, you know, students. We were just targeting working folks 
And uh, what was in- exceptional about that is COVID, you know, caused this disinterest and uh, inability to, you know, socialize and, and communally live any longer. So you're you're no longer able to afford your own space and oftentimes in, in cities like that are larger. So you're living with roommates, but we offered all studios. And so now appealing to young professionals that has, uh, you know, our made marketing points were here we are with your own space, your own bathroom, your own kitchen. You don't need to worry about a roommate. You've got everything right here, everything that you need. So don't worry about, you know, quarantining or getting sick or anything else. So that was a, that was a big deal for us and uh, something that we were able to play into to get that filled up that quickly. And so they, they basically though, just, just to, sometimes I'm a, a little obtuse, so just bear with me. So they, they scrapped the game plan and said, well, this isn't going to work for student housing because they're student housing. So let's reposition who the tenants are entirely and go after young professionals. Is that exactly okay? And the other property management company, I think you said, and just correct me if I'm wrong, they were kind of specialized in student housing. And so they were kind of caught flat footed and they, they, they couldn't probably couldn't have turned that corner. Exactly. Yeah. When it happened, when COVID occurred, it was just a matter of not understanding how long it was going to last. And by the time August rolled around, we were all kind of shocked at, at how schools were still you know, holding back on their admission or at least you know, full opening. So yeah, it was a, it was a shocker, but yeah, it needed to be changed. So that, that demographic change was huge. Very interesting story. And I just learned something and, uh, that, you know, I've been doing this now a couple of years. I'm a couple hundred real estate podcasts more actually. And I didn't even know, embarrassingly enough, but I will, I will open, expose myself here. I didn't even know that there were, uh, asset management companies in, in residential real estate. I, I just thought they're all property management companies. So what you're talking about is, is going a step up that food chain and people that will manage the entire process. So you don't even have to manage the asset. That's what I just heard you say. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that's right. And now as an operating investment fund, it helps us keep our operation more lean because we can third party. And as we scale, we have another company that's alongside of us scaling. And there's a, there's inherent risk in that, you know, a model because you're dependent upon another team's performance. Uh, but because of the experience that I've had with this team, that they treat, <laughs> they treat us like they own it. You know, it's just, there's, it's a, it's unparalleled customer service. Mm. It's ridiculous. So I just feel so confident in them. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I'm sure that you could find bad asset managers out there. Uh, it, it's before 2019. It wasn't something I was aware of either. So interesting because uh, here's where my mind goes as well is that it's got to add a layer of fees on. I mean, they're, they're, they're not getting discounts on, well, I could be wrong, but I would assume they're not getting great discounts on property management because you don't want to grind somebody so much on the property management that they don't do a great job. So it, kind of the cost is what the cost is with, within some degree. And so, I don't know, maybe they're so darn good at what they do that the, that the extra layer of fees just warrants it. I don't know. How does that all? Sh- yeah. You know, I look at fees not as what I'm expending to to have somebody there, but rather what I'm you know earning in order to have the opportunity to have them work for me. And if you look at the data from where we were before we had them employed on all of our projects to now that we do, you can see very clear trends throughout. And that is income is up, you know, to a degree of 13 to 15% more than what we had previously seen on every property and expenses operationally are down between five and 7%. And the people that are being held accountable to these standards of our business plan that all we now have to do is come up with and force them to, well, provide them to implement is going very smoothly. 
And so the, the 2% of gross receipts that they take is very well worth the uh, extra bump in NOI. And, you know, as a property owner, you have to understand that your ability to increase income and decrease expenses isn't just about cash flow. That translates directly into property value on multifamily scale. And the more units you have, the higher NOI you have against the market cap rate, the more property value you're going to ascertain, whether through refinance or through sale. That's where all your margins coming from. And so the, the more operationally fit we can be, the more valuable we are to our investors. And, you know, Emily and I, or my wife and I, are, we're our largest investors. We want our capital to work as hard as possible while we're not working. Uh, so having somebody like Indigo at the helm of all of that is uh, relieving. And it also understandably allows us to, to scale and continue to grow. You know, without them, how would we add additional units to, to try to wrangle? Because it's a, it's a job. You know, every, every single property has its unique challenges. Well, it's so interesting because, uh, you know, I've heard so many times, and inevitably there's exceptions to this, but, but I have heard so many times that just property managers, just their business model, they're not really aligned with the sponsor because, you know, the more work they have to do, right, the less money they make. And so they're there and, and they don't really care. Again, this, this is broadly speaking. And, and uh, there, of course, are good property management companies. But by and large, it doesn't impact their bottom line, what they're paying to in terms of the expense side of the business. It doesn't necessarily impact them. So it's easy for them to not, you know, sharpen their pencil. And at the same time, they don't necessarily, you know, they don't necessarily have to be super in tune with the market in terms of maybe they get a 10% rent bump and maybe, but maybe the market, you know, maybe, maybe there's a property across the way that's still getting another 5% than what you're getting. And so there's a lot to it. So I could see where, you know, there would be a role for a really good asset manager to create a lot of value for you in terms of overseeing that. And to your point, if you're a, a lean corporate structure and your your focus is more on you know broader strategy and growth all that stuff just weighs you down and, and slows your progress so I, I i get that exactly yeah i under i yeah. get that so ross how much is your current fund uh or how much of what you're currently doing is is uh you know asset conversions you know motel to multifamily or however you want to describe it yeah, it's our primary focus uh, has been for the last year and a half, uh, primarily because of policy that's been changing um, on a legislative level in states that are allowing us to um, open up. So basically take a previously C2, C1 zone, which would be a commercial zone, strictly prohibiting multifamily development, now is allowing multifamily development without any change of use or rezoning. So it cuts out 12 months and $100,000 from the project and allows us to deliver units to market much faster. And it's uh, it's solving a problem that is remarkable. Um, the, the folks that require housing have been staying in hotels, have been staying in their cars, have been staying on the streets. And they're, you know, not drug users. They're just people that are in transition and they need, they need housing. And the only way to provide housing that they can afford is by doing something really creative so that you can afford to charge them uh, what would be a, a lower you know, market rate rent so that their, their square footage is needs are less and uh, they can, you know, ultimately and only afford to pay so much every month. So providing opportunity for that's been a huge, huge interest for us and uh, in, on that social impact level. Wow. 
Interesting. Very interesting. H- how is it? What's it like getting financing? How are you dealing with that piece of the equation? It's great. Uh, so we have really good credit unions that are local uh, wow. in every market that we're operating in that not only see you know, the impact on the community, but also see the viability in the financing model, the debt service coverage, the equity increases. Uh, so it's just a very you know, symbiotic collaboration. And uh, I think that it just requires a little bit of a story, you know, which we have in spades now. Uh, so we've broken through that initial barrier of trying to explain what we're doing and how it works. And now we have a solution in place for a problem that's very financially stable uh, with all the data that we have to back that up. So uh, we can provide the evidence of this to each lender, regardless of the market. And, and we're working with you know, credit unions that are local to markets that we don't live in. And so that's a, it's a really rare and unique opportunity. Uh, and we're, we're happy to, to have their partnership. When did you start the fund? We started it officially in January of 2021. Uh, it's, it's very new, but we brought in historical assets. There was 45 million in total asset value that we merged into the fund's master LLC. And then we continued to add to it. So now we're at approximately 115 million in asset value. We're focused on growth. You know, so we're looking for the next 10 years to, to reflect the 700 to a billion dollar assets value within the portfolio. And uh, our, our main focus is IRR, maximizing the total rate of return for the investment dollar and understanding that for every property that you buy, there is a time to sell. And the math is going to lead the way there. So we have analysts and uh, loan operatives that keep very close track of exactly where we need to be in order to maximize our rate of return on our investment. Um, It is a 10-year hold, so it's a fixed investment period that that allows us to exercise our strategy, which is effectively the Burr model at scale, create value, refinance, and continue to to invest in new assets without any new equity injection. Uh, So that that compounds our return, expands it beyond um, the, the vast majority of operators out there, and we're, uh, we're targeting our pro forma uh, at a total 6x equity multiplier over that 10-year. Um, typical syndications are anywhere from 1.5 to 2x in a 3- to 5-year period with very little cash flow distribution. We also do instant cash flow distribution, uh, approximately a 6% APR upon your investment year one and gradually increasing as we continue to expand our portfolio of net income productive assets. That's compelling, to say the least. Um, are there any other funds that you know of that are specializing in uh, motel conversions? Yeah, I know a few. You know, what's been cool is we've gotten a ton of publicity out of this thing, and it's, uh, it's something that other people have been doing and uh, have been doing a while. I was shocked that the competitors that came out of the woodwork to talk to us, you know, really encouraged us and wanted to help and offered a lot of tips and different consultants and ways to, to expand upon like tax advantages and credits. Um, so it's, it's cool to see that other people have been doing this and, uh, have been doing it for the past, you know, 20 years. I think that it's becoming more popular now, um, as value adds is more and more elusive. Uh, but there's uh, there's a lot to not know, and I, I wouldn't ever say that it's easy. It doesn't doesn't sound particularly easy. So, h- how many? Like, what's um, first of all? Are, are these in opportunity zones? Some are, but it's not our focus. We're not an opportunity zone fund. We don't own ninety percent or more in opportunity zones. 
So we primarily like to take advantage of those areas by uh, assembling land or assets and then selling them as as assemblages for developers. What is the typical number of units in in typical size of acquisition of these? Anywhere from 100 to 150 is very common. And uh, that's going to be between 10 and 15 million usually. Uh, typically we're looking for units between 50 and $75,000 per unit. And then we'll have a 25% renovation budget of our total purchase price in general. And then what are, what are rents? And inevitably it depends on the market, but just general. They do vary. Yeah. But they, they generally hover around that thousand dollars per month. And then we do a really nice comprehensive utility package because like a typical hotel has internet cable, everything. And we extend that service. So for $150 flat fee, you get all of your utilities, 100%, including internet and cable. So let me clarify something, and it's not to be devil's advocate, but it's for me to understand. So, uh, <laughs> great, bring it on. Is you're saying that you're, you're solving a housing problem, you know, just because there's not enough housing, which we all understand that. You're saying that people are, you know, the people living on the street or they, you know, they can't afford housing, this kind of thing. But it sounds like a thousand bucks a month is, is a lot for that segment of the, the, of the renter population. It's, it's a, it's shockingly, that's not the problem. Their problem is their backgrounds. The problem is the policy that it's placed against them. Even though we have fair housing, we don't have fair, equitable housing for folks that really need a second chance. So people that have criminal history, eviction history, drug history, you name it. Uh, Not to say that we're just going crazy and putting a bunch of tenants in there that are going to create bad neighborhoods and effectively have homeless shelters. That's not what we're doing. We're partnering with agencies that have been funded with grants. Just in last the last year, there are fi- there's 550 million dollars reserved for the this section of tenant needed population, but there's no available housing. So uh, these housing agencies that range from tribal to homeless to advocates for women's health, advocates for you know women's domestic violence issues, uh, veterans affairs. Uh, there's all kinds of you can go on for days. Special interest groups that represent housing for tenant populations that are underserved or can't be otherwise housed, and so we partner with these agencies that do master leases sometimes or just reserve blocks of rooms and commit to paying those monthly rents. And then they bring in their tenants that are subsidized so that they can provide them with housing and culture. And when I say culture, it's not just about making sure that somebody has a roof over their head. It's about providing them support. It's about providing them community. So when we have a, a, a VASH group, say like Veterans Affairs Supportive Housing, we partner with them to provide community events. So in our lobbies, in our, in our common areas, we're bringing these veterans together and we're having vocational therapy. We're having uh, you know, mental health sessions for back, lack of a better word. Just basically how to, how to deal with life's reality and how to, how to relate as a community of members that have been through a lot of the same life experiences. So uh, opening up uh, rather than just to provide you know, a housing, but rather the community environment uh, is really important to us. And, and while $1,000 a month seems like a lot, it, it does match up really well with our minimum wage uh, when it comes to our total you know, income for the average person that is working, working class, making minimum wage. They need to be spending around $1,000 a month you know, or less in total rental costs. That equates to between 30 and 35% of their gross take home. So what percent would you say of tenants are, I guess, subsidized by different agencies where those 
agencies are, are they paying you the rent directly on behalf of the tenant? And what percentage, I guess, of the tenant population would that represent? It it varies per uh, property and they do specifically apply to hotel conversions, but it is between 40 and 60% subsidized. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it, man. Wow. So interesting. Um, and where, where are the properties thus far that you've acquired, I guess, in the last couple of years that you've converted or in the process of? Sure. Yeah. So we uh, started in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we've been in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Uh, we are in Fife, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, Centralia, Washington, SeaTac, Washington. Well, those are all the hotel conversions so far. Uh, we are you know, working on multiple uh, in California area, uh, so trying to scour up some there, and then uh, also continuing to scour the Midwest. Wow, are you are you trying to find other opportunities, or is this your sole focus at this point? Well, I always am looking uh, opportunistically for value add deals because that's the that was the bread and butter up until the point that we found hotel conversions to be so interesting, and uh, you know we still do stumble upon exceptional value add deals. And we just recently closed on one in Wichita, Kansas, which is a market that I would have otherwise found myself in. But we got the deal of a lifetime. You know, we bought from an owner that lived in, uh, owned the property since 1976 and, uh, had done very little to ensure that, you know, the tenants were paying market rent and that the property was being maintained. So we were able to steal the property for a value that he was excited about and got him out of it without any further capex. And uh, had a whole portfolio of properties as a result of that, that uh, we purchased at the same time from him and we've been uh, repositioning since. So, yeah, we're still looking. Was that a motel or are you saying that's just multifamily? Just multifamily. It's been operating as an apartment forever, uh, just has not been maintained or increased rents or anything like that. How many units is that one? Uh, there was 122 that we acquired. Uh, the main tower, which is of our interest, is the is going to be 100 once we're done renovating it completely. And then the other parcels will we'll have sold off. Hmm. Boy, you're, you're doing interest, very, very, very interesting things. On, on, on the motel side of things, how competitive is it on the acquisition in oh, the acquisition yeah, yeah, process? There are a few groups out there. I think the biggest issue is just you know, overcoming price expectations for hoteliers that were once real realistic and now are no longer because of interest rates. And it's not a slam dunk guarantee that you can convert everything because of municipalities. So you have to do your due diligence. But uh, I think that there's not enough competition to to really get in the way at this point. And uh, as usual, we're just going to our typical you know, resources to find these deals. And so we're expanding uh, on our criteria, uh, but not on our requirements. So you know, we, we're really focused on on finding the right buys and uh, we'll put out a lot of LOIs trying to get to the right price. But uh, so far, uh, nobody has been really willing to overpay that I've seen in the competition space just because of the amount of work that it takes to get to the finish line. Are more of them coming on the market? A lot of hotels coming on the market. Uh, there's a lot of depositions that are not healthy. And uh, I think that's generated some opportunity. But uh, there's a lot of demand for hotels. So I, there is definitely going to be some trading at some healthy GRMs for those hoteliers uh, that will not be converted into apartments because they're quality hotels. Uh, but when it comes to the 1980s, 1990s, exterior corridor entry you know, needs a lot of love. Those places require enough renovation and they're old enough that it's hard to bring them up to any standard as a hotel. So uh, the best exit for them is to become garden style apartment buildings. And uh, that's that's what we do. I see. Impressive. And it all started with falling off a ladder. It 
really it really did i mean it, that 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 was when it, uh, it it got put on on a treadmill i mean it just really i got running with it but it all started when i heard on the radio uh, an advertisement to join an auction company to learn about auction real estate that was the the true start that was when uh, we bought our first single family rental but you, you know what man you're a guy that that does things you know you're not a guy that hears it thinks it's a good idea and then forgets about it or tries it for 2 days and gives up you're a guy that gets things done I appreciate that. I'm curious. Yeah. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the attributes of successful people is curiosity. It's also one of the assets of smart people, which makes kind of goes hand in hand. So you said it's not easy in which that really doesn't surprise me because I don't know of anything that is. So the question is, uh, what, what would you say are some mistakes you've made along the way in, in this specific process that you've learned a lot from? Oh man, uh, trying to strong arm municipalities, thinking that I know enough to be able to help them understand that I don't need to do something or I do need to do something, uh, related to permitting, you know, usually. God, uh, do I really need an extra sprinkler head there? Come on, man. Like we don't have to do that. They're just so black and white. So don't waste your time, you know, bothering, arguing. Just get on board with whatever they want. Um, and then budget properly. Like, don't lie to yourself. Uh, I've made uh, budget overruns that have been you know, silly, you know, just unnecessary, stupid issues that I could have uh, had additional access from banks for leveraging, you know, rather than coming out of pocket an additional $300,000 to renovate a property, I could have, you know, got 75% leverage on that. So, well, shoot, that was a dumb mistake. Let's not do that again. Let's put in enough contingency to be safe here and, and ensure that our budgets uh, are protected from the inevitable, which is overruns. Uh, and then the, the last thing, which is definitely time oriented, I'd say focus on what's realistic to be accomplished in an amount of time rather than what your goal is. And, uh, you know, reverse engineer your goal from, from where you know it should be rather than where you know you want it to be. Time and budget. Well, fairness to you. I mean, I, you can only learn that stuff through experience, right? I mean, how, how, how can you be realistic when you don't have the experience and inevitably you're going to get better and better at it? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I tend to always say this because I, it's, it's a transition to winding down, but I mean this from the bottom of my heart. This has been a f- fascinating conversation. <laughs> Um, and so here's the question. How, how does one Ross get a hold of you if they were so inclined to want to learn more about what you're doing, perhaps participate, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Our website is probably the easiest. Sageinvestment.group. It's investment. It's not plural. Sageinvestment.group. And then, uh, you can take a look at, you know, what we do and, uh, also contact us if you'd like it. Uh, my wife's phone number is on there. So you can give her a call. <laughs> She's our investor relations. And, you know, we're, we're just a really down to earth small group of people. We've got, you know, 86 folks invested in just between us, mostly friends and family and you know, primarily ourselves. And we're just excited about the opportunity to continue to expand upon the business model that we know that works, even in high interest rate environments and, uh, and everything that we've got going on right now. It's, pretty remarkable that we can still uh, functionally provide the same level of returns to our investors uh, with the increased cost of capital. Well, that's because you got enough meat on the bone of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. We really care about it like it's ours. That's for sure. Because we, we, certainly, we certainly, it is ours. That's for sure. Well, I look forward to hopefully doing this again with you next year and checking in. Ross, I totally appreciate it. And I, and I will talk to you very soon. That'd be great. Thanks, Roger. Yep. 